Welcome to the Virtual Vascular Podcast. My name is Agla Kovalunete. Today we're going to dive deeper into the Virtual Vascular textbook chapter dedicated to open and endovascular treatment of abdominal aortic aneurysm repair. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Alexander Grati and Dr. Isabel von Herzle. We will find out more about their expert opinions on such a burning topic of AAA management. Dr. Van Herzle works at the Department of Vascular and Thoracic Surgery in Ghent, Belgium, and Dr. Grady works at the Department of Vascular Surgery in Innsbruck. Both of them have a key interest in AAA management. Thank you for joining. You're very welcome. Happy to be Hello, here. Hello, everybody. We would like to start by asking, Dr. Van Herzle, during your long career as a vascular surgeon, what are, in your opinion, the most important advances in the treatment of AAA? Uh, thank you very much for the question. I do feel kind of old if you tell me that I have a long career in vascular surgery. I've been in vascular surgery as a consultant since 15 years. And if you ask me what are the three most important advances in the treatment of AAA, I think it's difficult to choose from. I think one of them is I've seen the transition going from open AAA repair to endovascular management, um, both in elective and in ruptured cases. And I think especially in ruptured cases, the fact that we can treat this under local anesthetics, as long as our patient is suitable, uh, I think makes a huge difference. Um, the second thing I think is very crucial is uh, to have dedicated 3D workstations, being able as a vascular surgeon ourselves to look at the CT scan of your patient and to decide based on your patient's comorbidities, but also on patient anatomy, what type of treatment you would actually suggest for the patient. And last but not least, but that's probably influenced by some of the research I'm doing, the fact that you can actually learn a lot of the skills we actually use to treat our patients with AAA disease using simulation-based training, I think both in open vascular surgery, but also in endovascular treatments, allowing us to improve our quality of care. I think those are for me at least, the three most important changes over the years. Yeah, thank you. And it's especially interesting to hear about how training for AAA has also improved during the years. Dr. Grady, with the increasing number of endovascular procedures performed on AAA patients, which patients, in your opinion, nowadays should be indicated for open repair? I think this is a really important question because like Dr. Van Hesle mentioned uh, during last year's endovascular um, procedures, of course, had a huge adv um, advance. So we are a few thousand steps further than, than decades ago. Uh, we have patients who um, benefit from open repair still nowadays. And I think these patients are especially young patients, cardiopulmonary uh, fit patients. Uh, because we know from data that uh, regarding long-term outcomes, of, despite the development of, of better strategies in endovascular treatments, we have better long-term outcome in patients who are young and fit if they are treated by open repair. So I think this is the patient cohort that should be treated by open repair. But of course, it is um, important that these patients are treated in centers with expertise in open repair as well, as patients should be treated endovascular in centers who have endovascular expertise. Yeah, thank you. What do you think are the most important preoperative assessments that I should have in mind as a young trainee when I am looking at a patient to determine if it is more beneficial to uh, actually plan an elective open repair or endovascular repair? I think from the open um, surgery point of view, it is important that um, every patient who has who is planned for elective AAA repair should be um, 
investigated for cardiopulmonary diseases, meaning that you have a full setup of cardiac diseases with a transcircle echocardiogram, with an ECG, with a full uh, medical history anamnesis, where you ask the patients how they um, can uh, perform in, during daily life so that you get an, an insight of your patient, how he he or she performs during daily life. And of course, you need a pulmonary workup with um, full pulmonary history. So um, is there any history of COPT or is there any his history of other pulmonary diseases? Because we know that if the patients have problems from the pulmonary side, post-operatively meaning pneumonia or stuff like that, we have a prolonged post-operative course. So this is also an important uh, part to work up. And of course, the renal function. You, you also need to get information about renal function because we also know from that point that it is a parameter that if you have impaired renal function, um, preoperative, that you might get in trouble afterwards. But of course, this is an important um, topic as well in endovascular procedures. So I think these are the main steps in your workup, but it's also important to, to discuss with your um, patient about the options of treatment. So you, you need to involve your patient to the decision if endovascular open repair should be performed, because of course, um, the patients need to be informed about the options and should be involved in the decision as well, as far as it is, is medically okay. Yeah, thank you for that in detail answer. I think we'll definitely have a broader picture right now of how to assess patients preoperatively to determine best treatment option. I, I had actually a question. I think, Alexandra, you have a lot of open experience. And I think, do you think it's required, uh, ideally, in an ortic center that you can offer both open and endovascular treatment options? So it's actually easier to um, steer the uh, process on how you will be treating your patients, because I, I fully agree with your workup that you have to look on how fit is a patient. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, especially in the United Kingdom, they do quite a lot of... Um, uh, physiotherapy nowadays in patients who are planned for elective AAA disease to actually make the patients fitter. So they actually go through the operation a lot quicker. Something I've started doing as well is actually send my patients to the physiotherapist beforehand. And I have the impression if they have to, have to undergo both open surgery, but also fenestrated AAA, that these patients then to do a lot better, have less risk of having a pneumonia and other troubles. So I just wonder what your viewpoint was on that. Thank you for that comment. Uh, I, I think it's quite important that for a vascular center, especially if you're a center for aortic diseases, you are able to offer both options. And I think it's, it's um, of course, the optimal case is that you offer options open and endovascular for the whole aortic segment. So not only infrarenal, but uh, going up to, to thoracoabdominal aortic aneurysms as well. So I think, and, and I also think that um, if you want to inform the patient about possible treatment options, you need to offer both options because you can't talk to your patients in, in the open way or in the end way without having an expertise in both treatment options. Um, for the second question about um, physiotherapist workup beforehand, um, we tend to send our patients with impaired pulmonary function um, to physiotherapists as well, so that they can improve their um, ventilation function beforehand with bronchodilatations and, and with, with exercise training to kind of prepare their lungs for, for the operation so that you have a perfect start for the operation. But of course, I know that within other health systems, it's not always possible. But for us in Austria, we have 
the advantage that to do this as well. So, so we have the same strategy as, as you have, and we also seem to have better outcome if we uh, prepare our patients from that side. Wow, thank you. That's a very interesting point. Dr. Van Hetzler, I just would like to ask, this idea of uh, exercise therapy before surgery, could you recommend any studies on this topic? Because uh, I don't think there's a lot of emphasis being actually put on preoperative uh, physiotherapy rather than postoperative physiotherapy. If I'm not mistaken, there has been a randomized controlled trial that has been published in Annals of Surgery. Uh, that has actually shown that it has made a benefit. And I know that uh, other female colleagues like Tara Mastracci, but also the people I think in Liverpool and in Leicester are very focused actually to improve the overall uh, physio. So not only the pulmonary function, but also how much people are walking, improving their general condition and uh, hoping that whenever they need surgery, that they will be a lot fitter. So I think they've kind of combining it nowadays, even with those patients who have screenings of their aneurysms, they detect an aneurysm. Maybe it's not, um, has not reached the diameter before to actually warrant already uh, surgical treatment, but they already optimize the medical condition of the patients. And I think especially in the group of patients, well, I guess we all see those patients who you think, okay, this patient has an aneurysm, but doesn't really look too well. I think there's always the option not to treat them immediately, but to make them fitter before even considering any type of treatment. And I guess those are mostly the patients from the EVAR2 trial. Yeah, thank you. Moving on, we would like to ask both of you, how do you think the upcoming generation of vascular surgeons should be trained for open AAA repair? Because there's more and more discussions of declining numbers of open procedures and that it's becoming more difficult for young trainees to be trained in these. Do you think that there will be need for subspecialization in the future? I think um, to have a subspecialization is the wrong way. I think um, if if you are working in a center that um, is offering both open and end procedures, and of course you get trained in both ways. Um, if you um, make your residency in, in a center that is not that experienced in aortic procedures, then in my opinion, it is to, to be a fully educated vascular surgeon, you need to, to go for a certain time to a center to get in touch with as well open as, as endo procedures for AAA treatment. On the other hand, uh, nowadays we have a, a good development of simulator training. So there are, uh, for, for the open part, there are quite good uh, training simulators. There are good options for, for trainees to get in touch with simulator training for open AAA treatment. So of course, it's not real life experience when you do uh, AAA surgery on a simulator, but you get in touch with the techniques, with the handling of, of the sutures, with, with you, get, um, you have experts day, there who give you tips. So I think this is also an important part of training in, uh, in the residency of vascular surgeons to get in touch with open surgery. But again, I think it's important that you are trained in real life on patients because, in of course, we have more and more endo procedures. But the fear is that we might have problems with these lot of stent grafts that have been implanted in a certain small number of patients who need to get open surgery afterward, after a few years later. And these the number of these procedures in terms of open surgery will increase. So it is more and more important important that within your training, you get at least in touch with classic infrarenal AAA surgery. 
think I may have a slightly different view on the entire subject. I do apologize. I think, first of all, I think we all know that um, to have good outcomes in aortic disease, we need to centralize things. Uh, and, and of course, in different countries, there's different ways of treating patients, both open and endo. But I think there's no point of getting your aneurysm treated in a hospital that only does five cases per year. Um, so I think if you as a trainee already know that you will mainly be focusing on peripheral arterial disease, and that will be your goal, then I'm not entirely sure that you really need to be able to do also open aortic surgery if you're never going to apply it in real life or later, um, because I think it's a waste of resources. Uh, it's also a different type of, of technique. Um, I do fully agree with the fact that you can learn your skills anywhere. Uh, and ideally, they should be done gradually. I think I've been trained initially on a patient. I hope that's not the case anymore. Uh, but I do know it still happens. Uh, I think there's different possibilities in these on the simulators. You can, these are offered at various congresses like EVC, ESVS, where you can learn both open and endovascular techniques. But I think what's even more important that you also have the opportunity to do that at your local hospital. So you can really like can, can like warm up, especially if you don't do this on a weekly basis. Um, and we've even at our institution also installed that before they actually do the training also on corpses, which we have available to learn how to do an orthic surgical anastomosis that you actually practices on a simulator beforehand. But just also make sure that these people, when you train them, also have the ability to do it in real life. Because what is the problem with open surgery, at least in our institution, people with genetic disease that have a more fragile order and that you normally don't immediately let your trainee do it, or they're more complex cases where they're like juxtamines and type fours. Um, or the very young patient. So I agree that everybody ideally should have the opportunity, but if you know in advance, you'll be working at a hospital with 300 beds, will you only be doing peripheral arterial disease? I would say, you know, that it's probably better to focus on that peripheral arterial disease and maybe also do carotid artery disease than, than getting trained in open aortic surgery. I fully agree with, with your point of view that, that open AAA repair should be centralized. I fully agree, but... Um, I think that um, if you are becoming a vascular surgeon and if, if you are um, sure that you want to do peripheral arterial disease within your future, I think it's still important that young trainees get in touch with open aortic surgery within their training. Not that they are able to do these cases alone in their peripheral hospital afterwards, but I think it's important to, to learn how an uh, open AAA repair is done that you give um, the patients um, in your hospital when you're doing um, primary PAD uh, treatment that you can give your patients advice if they have a triple A, for example, beside their PAD. So, but of course, I'm I fully agree that the main treatment of triple A's in open surgery should, should be centralized. Moving on to some more of a clinical questions and clinical scenarios. We would like to ask if you had a 65-year-old male with ASA grade 3 with asymptomatic infrarenal AAA, would you prefer open surgery or EVAR and why? Uh, well, I would like to have some more information about the ASA 3. So what are the comorbidities of the patients and how fit is the patient? How large is your aneurysm? What does it look like? So I would always have a CTA of the aorta going from all the way from the valve all the way down. So I know if there's any other aneurysms, how far it's extending. And then I think if it's a fit patient, uh, 
with uh, an aneurysm, for example, an infrarenal aneurysm, then I would probably advise open surgery. But I would always um, ensure that the patient is happy with that. Of course, um, also telling them what the risks are of the operation, including uh, sexual dysfunction, uh, if necessary, or retrograde ejaculation in, in male patients. Uh, and we tend to also close the abdomen with uh, a mesh prophylactically because we know there's a higher risk of incisional uh, hernias. Uh, but I will always take the patient's consideration um, as well. So if the patient says, well, you know, I want to have really an endovascular option, um, then I would really, first of all, explain that with the current devices, if you take a device that has proven to be durable, you still will have to be watched because if you're only 65, we know that your life expectancy may be up to 85. And, you know, the uh, durability even of the second generation of sand grafts uh, may be better, but there's still issues. And we also know that there may be aortic disease uh, recurring or whatever's going to happen. So my preference is if it's a fit patient, I would do open surgery. Uh, if it's an unfit patient with good anatomy, I may consider EVAR but I will liaise with the patient. And if the patient needs to have more time, they actually most of the time come back a second time. So they get a, a folder, they get more information, they can look it up and then they can discuss it with their family or even their GP. And then uh, we'll have another discussion. I fully agree uh, with that opinion. And I think this matches uh, quite with the discussion we had beforehand about the preoperative workup the patient needs so that you need uh, the complete workup uh, cardiopulmonar and also the decision of the patient is important and I fully agree with that point of view. Yeah, thank you. And what about if we had a 85-year-old male with a ruptured AAA who came somnolent in the emergency room? Would you prefer surgery uh, open or endovascular and why? I think in, in this example it is um, also important to have a bit more information about the patient. Um, there are 85-year-olds who, who had good quality of life beforehand, and there are 84-year-old patients who, who were impaired beforehand. So in that case, I, if the patient is somnolent and you, you're not able to talk to him, I would try um, to, to get more information about the patient. And then also it would depend on the CTA. If there is um, a, a good option for endovascular repair, um, then I would prefer I would try an endovascular repair. Of course, if the patient is instable, somnolent, and and has uh, preconditions that that um, uh, suggest renal impairment or cardiopulmonary impairment, then open surgery should be should be indicated wisely. I think because endovascular is in that case, I think an option that could um, get the patient back, but open surgery is really dependent on the uh, comorbidities of the patient and the pre-existing um, quality of life he had. I would uh, indeed also look on what the patient's quality of life was beforehand. Was he still living independently or is he coming from a nursing home? What is his will? Because sometimes these patients already know exactly what they want. And, and some of these patients say, okay, I'll have the operation on one condition. I can come back to my original uh, situation. And so stable or unstable, if possible, I would go for endovascular repair. And even if they're unstable, I use a Reboa. Uh, to actually stabilize, and I would definitely try to do the operation on the local anesthesia. But um, if I'm planning to do this type of surgery, I would definitely have a very good um, communication with the patient, and if possible, with the family, to also discuss beforehand 
if a lot of um, complications may occur, how far we will go and take it uh, in a stepwise approach uh, after the operation. So not to prolong the life if we see there's a lot of uh, problems happening afterward. But age on itself is for me not an exclusion criteria to treat a patient. Yeah, thank you so much. And we touch upon a very important aspect of the guidelines where it actually states that a patient with limited life expectancy under two to three years should not undergo elective abdominal aortic aneurysm repair, but a decision may be influenced by the maximum size of the aortic diameter. In the clinical situation, I find this recommendation difficult to assess as it is difficult to assess life expectancy. In practice, how do you deal with this recommendation? Does this influence your clinical practice at the center you work? And if you decide that you will not electively operate a patient, do you still operate with the rupture? Or do you actually, if you have decided not to treat electively, do you still not treat a rupture? I think this is also a very um, generalized question because it's always depending on the individual medical history of the patient. Um, there, there are, of course, um, uh, diseases like, like end-stage cancer uh, where the decision about treating an triple uh, A electively or ruptured is a decision that is dependent on on the disease the patient is affected by. So, if you have end stage cancer, I think the answer is quite clear that you should not treat these patients in in that uh, stage of the disease. But of course, there are patients with uh, regarding the EVA two trial with cardiopulmonary diseases that, that um, define these patients being unfit for open surgery and then should not be treated by endovascular treatment. But I think this, this question is also very hard to answer, generalize, because it's also a quite individual decision for the patient. We also had cases where the patient who had um, a COPD of four like, like was really impaired in, in his daily life um, by his pulmonary disease but had a triple A and, and there was totally afraid about the triple A that it might rupture. And we had an, an indication to repair it regarding the diameter. And despite um, talking to the patient, you just had the feeling that his daily life is impaired because he's just afraid of his triple A. So that might be um, a helpful decision as well that you have a patient with being unfit for open surgery regarding EVA2 data, you should not treat him endovascular, but in this individual case, you decide to uh, treat him by EVA, you improve the quality of life of the patient and help him individually. So I think this is a question quite hard to answer in a general um, manner. I agree with the majority of what you said. What I try to do is if I really come across a situation, especially in older patients, I tend to involve, involve the geriatricians. So similar to like the TAVI staff meetings where you have to decide as a group if somebody's suitable to get a TAVI, yes or no. I actually try to do similar uh, by involving either cardiologist if it's mainly cardiac problems and the geriatrician and also get the independent view of the geriatrician. What is the quality of life of the patient? What is the patient expecting? And how will he recover afterwards? Um, of course, if it's a patient who has a large aneurysm and who doesn't have an anatomy fit for just a basic EVAR, then I think you just have to be very open with the patient. What I also find useful is if a patient decides not to be treated and also says, you know, whenever I come in with a rupture, I would prefer not to be treated. I also offer them to come into the hospital 
with symptoms and make sure that they get appropriate uh, care, if necessary, palliative care, that somebody is actually taking care of them. Now, that already takes away a lot of their uh, uh, anxieties uh, because when somebody's faced with a sudden rupture, know that you may be dying. I think there's very few people who say, well, it, is, it takes quite a lot of courage at that moment to say, no, I'm not having any treatment. So I think they need to be um, supported in that manner as well. And I think that's something uh, that we are not always, well, at least that's my experience, that we're not always good at as vascular surgeons. I fully agree with with um, what you said, and and I do it the same way. So I talk to the patients about their disease, about um, what happens if the aneurysm ruptures, what that means, and of course we also offer them to come to the hospital to get uh, pain medication, um, and to get palliative care, of course. Um, I think this is really important because when when you talk to patients in the elective setting and and they tell you, well, I don't want to get treated because of of other comorbidities or because I'm 85 years old and and it's okay for me that I know I have a triple A, but I do not want to get treated. When the triple A is ruptured and they are in the emergency room, everything might be different and you need to, to discuss this, um, what it, what happens if it ruptures with the patient beforehand. And in our experience, it's also extremely important to have a good documentary about what you, uh, what you have um, discussed with the patients. If, if, another, uh, if a colleague of you is on call when the patient comes in with the rupture, then you need to know what has been discussed with the patient beforehand because that might help a lot. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for your answers for such a difficult abstract question for a very clinical setting. I just wanted to say one more thing with regards to the recommendation and the guidelines. So it tells you indeed that if somebody's on fit, not to treat them, but it also tells you that if somebody's on fit, you can try to get them fitter. And if they are becoming fitter, then you can still treat them. I think a lot of you young doctors know this a lot better than when I was trained, is that I think it's not only about treating the aneurysm, it's about treating the entire patient and all the comorbidities. So sometimes patients are coming in very unfit, but sometimes in three months, you can really make them a lot fitter, and then you can still give them the opportunity to be treated. And I think you're never there on your own. It's a team decision, so um, it should not be that difficult, hopefully. And I also think that that guideline, it's important that we have guidelines and if it's important that we have recommendation based on data. But as I mentioned before, it's an individualized decision in each patient. So, so you can't stuck on that guidelines for each patient you get in touch with. You need to talk to the patient. You need to get in touch with the patients. You need to know the patient. And then you need to get the, the individualized perfect solution for every individual patient. Yeah, thank you. That's a great, great answer. Shifting gears, we would like to ask, in the modern era of cardiovascular risk management and assessment, do you think that the that we should loosen the threshold for AAA repair? In my opinion, I think um, we have, of course, a bit outdated, but good data about the indication for repair. I think we made a huge step that we made different thresholds uh, regarding gender so that we have a lower threshold in in women than in men i think that it's it's quite important to got that we got that step because i in 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 our experience um so i think it it is a huge step that we have the dif the difference in uh, regarding gender and the threshholds uh, regarding indication for repair 
But I think still there is a clear cut off from the thresholds regarding the diameters um, when we have the indication to repair, especially in open surgery, because you have um, complications and, and side effects from the open surgery that you need to discuss with the patient. And you need, I always kind of um, argue that we have to, to take risk and advantage and before the 5.5 centimeter in men and the 5.2 centimeter in women, um, the disadvantages of the open surgery are not as high as the benefit. And from latest data, we also know that the, the risk of rupture within these diameters is relatively low. So we, we are safe before that uh, threshold. So I don't think that we should um, put that threshold down without having data uh, confirming the, the, the benefit of it. But of course, um, cardiovascular workup is improving and also the, the preoperative um, preparation of the patients is improving. But I think for loosening the threshold, we need more data. I um, I'm, I'm, of course, part of the guidance committee, so that maybe makes me biased, but I fully agree. I think there's no data, not for open, not for endovascular repair, to actually lower the threshold for repair. Uh, I think it's probably more important to invest in the overall well-being and cardiovascular risk uh, improvement in these patients and treat them whenever they actually, and, or consider treatment when they reach the diameter of 55 millimeters in males or Asian males and females, uh, 50 millimeters, I think there's no need to, to lower it at all. Except, of course, if you have a mycotic aneurysm, but that's uh, a different circumstances. But I would fully agree, there's an, uh, we need more data to do that. Uh, I think there's a lot more we can do as surgeons for our patients than lowering the threshold and treat uh, aneurysms earlier on. We know from the CESAR trial, the pivotal trial, hasn't shown any benefit in treating them earlier with endovascular means either. So definitely agree. But I think there, there might be a bit of hope to get new data um, out of um, studies investigating um, the, the shear stress on aortic wall in, in, in models, as well as parameters uh, getting out from CT scans. So I think, think there is a lot going on at the moment. So maybe we get some um, new data within the next years where we have kind of parameters or or. Um, indicators suggesting aneurysms that might rupture, rupture earlier than, than others. So I think um, we are still not in the end of investigation in that field. So I think it's, it's not forever, but at the moment, I think there is not enough data. Yeah, thank you very much. We have slightly touched upon EVAR2 trial, but following the results from this trial, if a patient had an asymptomatic infrarenal abdominal aortic aneurysm of 70 millimeters, and is highly comorbid for open repair, would you still perform EVAR? I would not, unless I can make him fitter. And if the anatomy is suitable, you may consider it if you can make him fitter. But if they're really unfit, I would still follow up the page. So I would not leave the patient on his own because then people feel completely abandoned and just see the patient again, trying to improve them. But if their clinical situation does not improve, I'll follow them up with ultrasound. And if it would still rapidly grow, then you can still reconsider, but I would not. I fully agree in that point. Again, it's it's an individual decision, but I think it's if he's really, if he's highly comorbid and, and has an asymptomatic um, inferenal triple A, uh, we would not treat him. But of course, putting him into the follow-up Touching upon a different aspect of AAA treatment, 
A debate surrounding the definition, diagnosis, and treatment of AAA in women continues. Why, in your opinion, there are such sex-related differences in the presentation, treatment, and eventual outcomes of male versus female patients with AAA? I think um, an important thing that we know from from um, data from women with triple A's is hormone status. So we know that in in menopausal and postmenopausal phases, there uh, might be different effects of the hormones to um, patients who might have had an aneurysm beforehand. So I think this is an important uh, thing that we can't really um, affect. So, but again, I think it, it, it was an important step that the threshold has been put down in women. But I think um, it's also important that it's not only the gender, but it's also the height of the patient, so the body surface. So if you, as in smaller patients, lower threshold should be taken as an indication for repair than in, in tall patients. I think that is also an important fact, This um, not only for women, but also for men. So this is my opinion on it. I fully agree with those, but I think there's also still sometimes the tendency that people tend to underestimate the risk of cardiovascular disease in women uh, because it's still regarded as a male-dominant uh, pathology. So uh, I think women also tend to present there often. Later, are often their risk factors are less well-controlled. And I think, unfortunately, we caught up on the smoking, the stress, and all the rest with our males uh, compared to years ago. Um, we have smaller vessels. So from an endovascular standpoint of view, uh, sometimes you get more uh, trouble with your access if you want to do endovascular treatments. And if I'm not mistaken, I think women also tend to have more like juxtarenal and type 4 type of thoracoabdominal aneurysms than uh, the male counterparts where you have more infrarenal AAA. So, uh, and we also know that in, in males in a lot of countries, there's screening programs. We know that screening in women is not cost beneficial. So we don't tend to do the screening. And that probably also um, implies that they're awfully not caught up that often. Of course, a lot of women are getting an ultrasound or CT scan maybe for other pathologies and they're maybe diagnosed. Yeah, thank you. And just touching upon that females currently are not getting the screening programs in most countries due to cost-benefit analysis. What do you think, and having in mind that the outcomes in female patients are worse than in male, what do you think we need uh, evidence to have to actually implement uh, more screening programs for women? I think at the moment we don't have enough data to show that indeed screening picks up a sufficient number of aneurysms in females. So that's the reason why it's not done, but it's still done in males, although I think this may be changing as well. And it may be more in like um, those groups of patients with a risk of atherosclerotic disease. So patients who had a cabbage, smokers, active smokers, family history, I think probably the whole screening process may, may change over time. And, uh, but I think at the moment we don't have enough data. The second thing is I think women are still underrepresented in a lot of the trials, any trial that's being done, any randomized control trials. Uh, so I think we just have to gather more data on whatever's being done and uh, how often it's actually presenting. I think there's quite a lot of people working on that from groups in Sweden, et cetera. Look, and also Janet Powell, of course, in the UK, having a big interest in uh, the risk of aneurysmal disease and vascular disease in females. So hopefully we'll have more answers in the future. And to finish off, we would like to ask both of you, 
A revised ESVS guidelines for the management of aortic iliac aneurysms is currently being updated. In your opinion, what changes can we expect in the new guidelines? So as I'm not biased, as I'm not part of the guidelines committee, uh, from my hand, um, as we had the discussion now about women and uh, about gender aspects, of course, um, there is an expectation about getting new information about that important topic, but we've discussed this beforehand. On the other hand, I think there is also a lack of data and a lack of recommendations um, within the ILEC section. We, we have a lot of data within uh, the, the, the aortic section, but we also have patients with um, isolated ileic aneurysms, and we do not have a lot of data and a lot of recommendations um, about clear indications. So I would expect here some, some new recommendations. It's quite difficult to say because I'm not allowed to, <laughs> to give you an insight. Oh, no. <laughs> but uh, uh, even when I would not be in the guidelines, I guess we can expect also a lot more information about the treatment of uh, juxtarenal and uh, type 4 thoracobdominal aneurysm because a lot more data out there, both about open but especially about endovascular treatments, physician-modified grafts, et cetera, long-term follow-up, what are the risks associated. I hope we'll have more data as well. And I do expect to have also some um, recommendations on the newer devices and how to actually um, follow up your newer devices because we know there are still issues. It's not because it's new that it's always better. When you mentioned juxtareno data, quite quite an, an interesting topic as well, because we tend to discuss this during our daily workup. If, because if you have a, a kind, kind of a short neck or juxtarenal aneurysm and for the endovascular option, you, you only have a fever, sending all the risk from endovascular procedures and within an open procedure, you would be able to put the clamp just below the renals and, and do a, 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 short, a quick anastomosis and might keep it infrarenal. So, so we tend to treat these patients open, um, preferred by fever, um, but, but of course there is no data giving advices so far. So, so I think there, there are a few challenging questions in that section, to, to, with, which gives you a decision to do open or endo. Before doing a fever, you might operate on a not totally fit patients to, to keep it in for renal. So I, I fully agree that there is a lot of data missing and experience Yep, something definitely we will be looking out to, to get our hands on the new guidelines as soon as they're published. Thank you very much for an interesting discussion on, on abdominal aortic aneurysms. Thank you very much. Perfect. Yep. So, thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. See you soon. Bye. Bye.